0: This is World Lutheran News Digest, an audio news magazine bringing you a look at significant events in worldwide Lutheranism. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO, a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Today on World Lutheran News Digest… I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. The United States Civil Rights Commission has been around since 1957. Its purpose is to inform the development of national civil rights policy and enhance enforcement of federal civil rights laws. In short, it roots out discrimination. The Commission recently released a report titled Peaceful Coexistence, Reconciling Non-Discrimination Principles with Civil Liberties. This benign title belies the report's content. It's openly hostile to religion. Commission Chairman Martin R. Castro writes, quote, The phrases religious liberty and religious freedom will stand for nothing except hypocrisy so long as they remain code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, Christian supremacy, or any form of intolerance." This statement is a wholesale indictment of mainstream faiths that believe in traditional marriage, oppose abortion, and believe that Jesus Christ is the path to salvation. I speak with First Liberty Institute attorney Matthew Kaczmarek about this report in today's World Lutheran News Digest.
1: And now, today's Fast Track. I'm Sarah Golseth with news in brief of interest to Lutherans worldwide. Concordia University Nebraska continues its climb up the Best Regional Universities Midwest category of the U.S. News and World Report's Best Colleges Ranking. In the 2017 edition, Concordia Nebraska is ranked in the top 40 of 163 universities listed in its category, an increase of 14 spots in the last four years. Concordia Nebraska has been ranked in the top tier of the annual report for 14 consecutive years. The effort to hold the fetal tissue procurement company, STEM Express, in contempt of Congress moved forward despite Democrats walking out of the vote. After the six Democrats on the special House panel physically exited the room in protest, the Republicans investigating the fetal tissue market voted unanimously to take legal action against STEM Express for refusing to hand over its accounting records. STEM Express came under scrutiny after it was featured in last year's undercover videos alongside Planned Parenthood, the nation's top abortion provider. The accounting records the company has refused to disclose, Republicans say, are crucial to figuring out whether STEM Express broke any laws when procuring tissue and other body parts from aborted babies. A bill currently under review by the Council of the District of Columbia would legalize physician-assisted suicide. But opponents say that the bill lacks sufficient safeguards to protect the sick and disabled, poses a grave danger to the city's most vulnerable residents, and ignores medical advances in pain relief that make such legislation unnecessary. This is World Lutheran News Digest.
0: I'm Kev Allen, host of World Lutheran News Digest. My guest today is Mr. Matthew Kaczmarek, who's the Deputy General Counsel of the First Liberty Institute. Mr. Kaczmarek, can you tell me a bit about yourself and about First Liberty?
2: Yes, First Liberty Institute is headquartered in Dallas, Texas, and is dedicated to restoring uh, religious freedom for all Americans. And uh, I presently serve as Deputy General Counsel uh, to the Institute, Uh, formerly served in the Department of Justice as an Assistant United States Attorney, uh, and now spend um, much of my time uh, defending rights of conscience and um, First Amendment speech and religion cases.
0: Mr. Kaczmarek, the reason I'm interviewing you today is because the United States Commission on Civil Rights recently released a report, ironically, entitled Peaceful Coexistence, about freedom of religion and what it, what it means. And the chairman of that commission, a gentleman by the name of Martin R. Castro, and I'm going to quote here from him, he says, The phrase is religious liberty and religious freedom will stand for nothing except hypocrisy, so long as they remain code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, Christian supremacy, or any form of intolerance. He goes on to say, we now see religious liberty arguments sneaking their way back into our political and constitutional discourse in an effort to undermine the rights of some Americans. What is he talking about?
2: I'm sure sort of projecting... Uh, a false history of religious freedom in these United States. It is it is an emerging narrative that uh, the terms uh, religious liberty and religious freedom are mere pretext for animus or bigotry, and have always been deployed in protectual ways uh, to the disadvantage of certain minority groups. As a factual matter, that's not historically true. We've often made the case. You'll see many analogies uh, to the civil rights movement and the misuse of uh, religious arguments by some um, bad-intentioned people in the American South. And and this is sort of projected across the spectrum of all religious dissent. Um, It's a way uh, casting the shadow of racism on sincere uh, religious liberty and religious freedom arguments. You'll often hear reference to Loving versus Virginia, or some of the cases where religion arguments were used in ahistorical and illogical ways. Uh, but of course, religion has been, you know, a, a first liberty issue all the way back to the 18th century, and we have created safe places for religion and religious dissenters all the way back to our very founding. And so, religion has. Uh, always been at the heart of our constitution. It's been at the heart of uh, who we are as Americans, and we have always sought to effectively balance uh, the sorts of uh, civil rights and, and religious rights uh, to, to achieve you know, something like an Aristotelian golden mean so that we can achieve true peaceful coexistence. And First Liberty Institute uh, filed an amicus brief uh, in, in support of a conscience case at the Supreme Court recently. It was signed by 43 members of uh, Congress. Uh, It was in support of the petitioners in the Stormans case. And we make the point in that brief that all the way back to the 18th century, we were creating exemptions and uh, exceptions for religious dissenters who did not want to participate in the Revolutionary War. So I I can't think of a more compelling governmental interest than uh, forming and staffing an army uh, at, at the very formation of, of the nation, uh, but, but still we allowed uh, pacifistic Quakers uh, and Mennonites uh, to exempt themselves from uh, service or to serve in a nonviolent capacity. In that brief, we patch an exhibit of 160-plus uh, exemptions for religious dissenters. As, as, as a personal example, if I am a uh, Roman Catholic who is opposed to the death penalty, and a federal prosecutor, I do not. I cannot be compelled to participate in a capital prosecution.
0: Yes, I've read. Um, I've read several of the dissents, and one by. Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to mispronounce her name, Roy, I believe.
2: Uh, yeah. Um, I think that's right. Gail Harriet, I thought her name. Harriet,
0: Harriet, yes. And and part of her defend her uh, dissent, she is saying, the phrases uh, she quotes about the uh, uh, Mr. Castro's. Reference of liberty and religious freedom meaning that they're really just code words for discrimination. And she replies to that, in some ways, I envy anyone who can dismiss those who disagree with them as mere hypocrites. And she goes on to say, does Chairman Castro really believe that the Little Sisters of the Poor, whose case currently is before the Supreme Court, are just a bunch of hypocrites? Does he really believe that they are making up their concern about being compelled to finance their employer's contraception? Does he really believe they just want to save money? That seems to be what he is saying, and, and you're quite correct. Her dissent is eloquent. Uh, I think one of the problems, uh, one of the main issues on this, I think, regard is regarding, say, for example, the uh, problems uh, or the situations confronting, say, same-sex marriage. Now, according to the Pew Center, the following religious bodies are in opposition to same-sex marriage. American Baptist Churches USA, the Roman Catholic Church. Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, Islam, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Southern Baptist Convention, and the United Methodist Church. That encompasses the majority of the United States' religious belief. It seems to me that the commission is now saying that these people are all hypocrites, Islamophobes, homophobes, based on their religious beliefs.
2: Yes, so um, you make this point in our amicus brief filed uh, in the Alberta book. Obergefell case. I think by uh, reference to the same two data, we approximate that about 100 million Americans are members of Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Jewish, Mormon, Muslim uh, denominations that still hold to this millennia-old view of, of marriage. And it doesn't matter what the faith distinctive term is, sacrament uh, Kedushan, Nika, Americans in, in these growing, um, primarily Abrahamic denominations, are going to continue to preach uh, and, and to seek to exercise their sincere religious belief that marriage is um, the conjugal or sacred union of one man and one woman. So, yes, the Commission uh, sort of takes you know, an almost Marxian view of history, uh, that these Beliefs are just going to uh, fade into the dust. They'll be counted as um, irrational bigotry. Anybody uh, found uh, with these beliefs will will be counted a bigot uh, by future historians. But it's unlikely to happen because these beliefs predate the republic. Uh, These beliefs are millennia old. You know, going back in the Christian tradition, two thousand years, even further in the Jewish tradition, and it's because it, it it inheres in the Genesis view. of of creation, that God created man and woman in a certain complementary way. Now it it is true, this view is on a potential collision uh, course with competing secular and sexual uh, revolution views, that's fine. We live in a diverse and pluralistic society, Uh, but but the idea that it is in the American tradition to uh, just wipe the field clean of any religious descent, even where society changes, is, is just thoroughly un-American. And, and to go back to the, um, the other point about uh, uh, Commissioner Castro's uh, insistence that this is, this is bigotry, this is animus, this is akin to racism, I, I don't think that line of reasoning uh, will hold in the long term. It's, it's politically p- potent in the short term, but this analogy to interracial marriage is just ahistorical and illogical. Uh, on the a, a, a historical point, all of Christendom, all of Christendom permitted interracial marriage uh, until 18th century slaveholders devised the political lie to suppress a very inconvenient truth and that is that a man and a woman do unite in conjugal union to create interracial children. And that was inconvenient for the racist uh, Jim Crow style regimes uh, that, that existed in this country and that are fundamentally unjust, and it's true that some Southerners, you know, may have wrapped, wrapped their racist politics and the rhetoric of religion, but it was an even larger coalition of Catholics and Protestants and Jews who brought an end to these racial purity laws using a direct appeal to shared religious principles. In fact, um, this is, you know, when people speak of Loving versus Virginia, which is a, a very rightly famous um, uh, constitutional case, they forget that the very first case striking down an anti-miscegenation statute was brought by Roman Catholics who made religious liberty arguments against the state of California. They made the expressly religious argument that they were Roman Catholics who had um, uh, religious rights to enter into what their church considers a sacrament, and and they were the first couple to strike down, you know, who who effectively struck at the heart of the anti-miscegenation So. This, this religious liberty equals racism argument cannot withstand serious scrutiny and, and I also I, I think the the analogy to the civil rights movement is just is just wrong And I think at this point you have to decouple the sexual revolution from the civil rights movement. A lot of the rhetoric att- attempts to couple the two couple the two and I, I think it's for reasons of, of, of laziness, and and sort of uh, the fact that these two things seem to be coterminous, they happen at the same time. But the Civil Rights uh, Movement looks very different than the sexual revolution. If you look at the founders of the American Civil Rights Movement, it it is thoroughly Judeo-Christian in its tradition. And it was essentially moderate in its demands. They wanted to restore rights that were baked into the cake of the Constitution. They were fought for and won in the Civil War. With the enactment of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and it was expressly religious. These were African Americans seeking the same rights of a family, home, church, school, rights to open business. These were just essentially moderate demands made upon a pre-existing Constitution. That, that's very different than the sexual revolution, which has had a pretty spotty record in, in winning over hearts and minds. You know, the... the um, The sexual revolution made demands on uh, divorce and pornography, uh, made certain assumptions uh, about promiscuity and adultery, and they've mostly been wrong. And and the sexual revolution looks nothing like the civil rights movement. So I think you have to decouple those two nice political rhetoric to pretend they're the same thing. But once you decouple those, you see... As as a, as a matter of logic, as a matter of history, as a matter of legal precedent, those those two trajectories are very different.
0: Well, something I read in the uh, in the report that uh, I find very very disturbing is that the chairman seems to be saying that whenever religious freedom, as defined by the Constitution, goes into conflict with regulations by a group or a or a uh, law on not, on discrimination, the discrimination point of view, will take preeminence, and that's his word, I believe, preeminence over religious freedom. Is that, uh, the, am I reading that right?
2: Yeah, so I think this was um, Chairman Castro, which um, I, I think that's a correct word. I, I, don't, I don't recall if he uses preeminence, but he makes the basic point, when there is this collision of sexual liberty and religious liberty, sexual liberty prevails. Now, I think he also added into his analysis sort of a boilerplate of non-discrimination categories. But that's just false, as a matter of history, as a matter of logic, uh, as a matter of, of of law. There are many instances where we create very particularized, carefully balanced statutory exemptions for religion when they come into potential conflict with a protected class. So, sex is a is a, is a classic example. So there, you know, since at least you know, the 1920s, there are myriad, myriad um, quote unquote sex protections and and sex rights uh, that have been declared by judicial decree or or codified, you know, looking at contraception, looking at abortion, sterilization, things like that. Lots of states and the federal government have protections for these sexual liberties, but they're always held in careful balance for the conscientious objector or the religious dissenter who who merely requests permission to step aside. Uh, and, and be excused from a procedure that violates their deeply held beliefs. But so. I think
0: we're seeing a problem here. I mean, for example, we're seeing uh, the Christian Baker, Cake Bakers, or Floral Arrangement, where they're saying, I cannot lend my artistic ability to create something p- celebrating gay marriage. They're, you know, You're welcome to come in the store and buy whatever you want, but I can't do a specific job for you because of my beliefs. And they are being successfully prosecuted and fined. Uh, where uh, this, where we are running into a situation where the supposed non-discrimination clause is running directly under the free exercise clause, at least when it comes to individuals.
2: Yeah, I think there, are, um, I think there are um, two points to be made here, and I would uh, refer your listeners to the uh, Hoover Institution article by uh, Professor Richard Epstein, um, who is uh, a very bright light in the legal academy. Uh, he's written extensively on, on some of these public accommodation. Concept. I think two things are going on here. Number one is we have a rapidly metastasizing government, uh, federal and state, and even municipal that just invades more and more sectors of American life that used to be essentially private or, you know, at least uh, a space where the government you know, just didn't interfere. What you've seen is an Anglo-American legal tradition of, of common carrier rules, which were essentially designed to to grant absolute equal access. Uh, to certain monopolistic industries. So if you're a rail line or a freight line, you know, and and you have the benefit of a state-conferred public monopoly, you you have to take all all takers, you have to take all comers. And that, you know, those sort of common carrier rules carried with them uh, an implicit assumption of, of monopolistic power. That sort of became and bled into certain public accommodation principles codified in the 20th century. But as you move from common carrier to public accommodation, what we see now, it it, it bears no resemblance to any of of those those prior monopolistic assumptions. It's simply not true that people can't get a cake made in in places like Portland or Denver or my hometown of Dallas. There are myriad alternatives available. And in all the cases I'm aware of, uh, most of these bakers serve all comers except for one very narrow category. The, 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 the sacrament of marriage. Some people call it a covenant. Some people, you know, use uh, different faith distinctives language, but it's this this institution of marriage. You know, one of the original seven sacraments of the Christian Church. It's equally sacred uh, or similarly sacred in, in Muslim and Mormon uh, faith traditions. It's this one little narrow area where a baker. A florist or a photographer is requesting permission to excuse themselves and in most instances refer gladly refer the customer to someone else
0: well i understand that and, and and to me the idea being that it's one thing to walk into a shop as they have done to to the bakers or the florist and say and it's more than happy to sell whatever is in the shop as it is that we will treat them like any other customer but when they are being asked to lend their artistic talent to something over and above what you can just buy off the sh- off the shelf, and there are other options available. That's where they're getting persecuted.
2: Yeah. So, and if you look at the relevant paragraph in the commission report, so I'm going to read from it here, quote, "...providing commercial goods and services does not require that one blesses an event. Taking pictures is not testifying to one's spiritual endorsement. Brossing a cake is not helping celebrate something believed to be a transgression of divine law. Selling flowers is not contributing to a marriage cult. Celebration those are secular commercial quid pro quo transactions straightforward exchanges of products and services for money Two things are happening here with that paragraph First there is an oversimplification of the problem as as you say the court here is treating as Commodities things that actually do require a lot of artistic and and personal uh, investment and it's interesting to see Uh, the American left disinterested in uh, free speech protection for artistry, something they used to care about in the 1960s and 1970s. Today's ACLU looks very different. Uh, A second thing that's happening here, and it's very similar to the problem seen in the Little Sisters cases, the the Hobby Lobby and and the Zubit cases. Here you have a secular tribunal imposing its, understanding of its secular understanding of moral complicity on religious actors who have a different concept of moral complicity or or Christian ethics. The court here says, uh, because they have arrogated to themselves the right to decide the question, they say, you're not complicit, we don't think you're complicit, so the law gives no quarter to your conscience or your objection or your dissent. Well, that sort of imposition of a secular judgment on an essentially sacred question, that's exactly what the First Amendment Free Exercise Clause was designed to protect. That's exactly the sort of uh, conscientious object- objection that has been historically protected uh, under you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of laws. Like, uh, to give you an example, you know, in, in the American military, there are two conscientious objector status- statuses. The government is not allowed to say that the pacifistic Quaker or Mennonite is wrong. Instead, we've decided as a matter of public policy to create two alternatives. You can serve in a nonviolent capacity but still serve in uniform, or you get an absolute exemption. This just isn't the American tradition for secularists sitting on a commission or a court to just override uh, the the moral complicity views and, and, and the religious uh, ethics view of the center
0: there's been know? a lot of, of twisting of language here again there's one I'm looking again at, at the dissent and uh, there's one where it states uh, that uh, chairman uh, Castro was saying is accusing people just want to be left alone of having to of having to exercise quote Dominion and quote veto power over the rights of others. And then she goes on to say, it's a serious error to fail to make the distinction between the desire not to be coerced by government and the desire to use governmental authority to coerce others.
2: Yeah, and this is this is a recurring problem, uh, and I saw this when I worked for the Department of Justice. This is the recurring problem of the concept of third-party harm. With pretty reckless linguistic relativism, concepts of harm have just moved from you know a, a well-known category of actionable injury, you know physical harm, uh, uh, assault, people taking your business, uh, to mere offense, uh, and you see this in uh, the quotation in, in the uh, U.S.C.C.R. Uh, report. They quote to Chai uh, Feldblum of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission: "If I am denied it, and I'm quoting here, if I am denied a job, an apartment, a room, a hotel, a table at a restaurant." that hurt is not alleviated because I might be able to go down the street and get a job, an apartment, a hotel room. I am assaulted by this. And I'm summarizing a bit here. Uh, Quote, the assault to my dignity and my sense of safety in the world occurs when the initial denial happens. Well, this is a very different conception of legally cognizable harm. The idea that, and this I think is a consequence of, of some of the uh, poetic but illogical language of Justice Kennedy in his sort of sweet mystery dignitarian thesis. There's this idea that to suffer a moment's disagreement with a fellow American is a cognizable harm. That you that harm uh, now deserves to be punished to the tune of 135 thousand uh, dollars in the Klein case, or or the sort of reeducation.
0: Well, Mr. Keserik, we're just about out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to explain this dilemma and the situation to my audience. These are interesting times in which we live, sir.
2: I agree. uh, But the good news is uh, there are uh, good guys. Um, And I'll say this, across the ideological spectrum, um, left, right, and middle, there are still people who believe in the First Amendment. Uh, There are still people who believe in the Free Exercise Clause uh, and the Free Speech Clause. And a good number of them work at First Liberty Institute in Dallas, Texas.
0: God bless you and your organization, sir. Have a pleasant day. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. and again on Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. Central Time on Worldwide KFUO Radio. It may also be heard anytime streaming online at kfuo.org. Join us again next Saturday for another new edition of World Lutheran News Digest. I'm your host, Kip Allen.